This is Africa Digest. It is 1700 hours Central African time. Hello, welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. We are broadcasting to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa on 9625 kHz and the 31-bit band if you are in Southern Africa. My name is Spumile Lezondi. I'm with Joala Netulo, Wisani Matabula and Mosibudi Makura. It's up stories. A military court in Lesotho finds 22 members of the Lesotho Defense Force not guilty of mutiny. Talks aimed at reviving South Sudan peace agreement, which collapsed in 2015, enter the second day today in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. First, Jola Netulu with the news. Thank you, Spumalele. Good afternoon. Starting in South Africa, the matter of the 68 alleged votes related to the election of the ruling party's ANC's Secretary General is now expected to go to plenary. This follows a meeting of the ANC Steering Committee to resolve the issue. Electoral officials allegedly told the delegates that they did not appear on the voters' roll. The result of the Secretary General position that was won by ANC Premier Esma Khashule over his rival Senzo Mkhonu by 24 votes now lies in the balance. Busi Chimombe reports. Whether the matter will be resolved by a recount of just the Secretary-General position or the entire national officials will now be decided by the over 4,700 delegates at a plenary session. Meanwhile, the schedule for the conference is lagging with commissions to discuss the various policy documents up for debate, having begun this morning as opposed to last night. Two important documents, strategy and tactics and organizational renewal, need to be presented today and voting for the National Executive Committee members is still due to get underway. With tomorrow being the last day of conference, organizers are under pressure to ensure that the program is completed on time. Meanwhile, Diplomatic Society in South Africa's capital, Pretoria, has welcomed the election of Cyril Ramaphosa as ANC president. Dean of the Diplomatic Corps, Ben Mpoko, also has also acknowledged the losing candidates, saying their abilities to lead should not be overlooked because they did not emerge victorious. Mpoko says the people have spoken and the international community in Pretoria is happy with their choice to elect Ramaphosa. Four people have been killed and five injured late on Monday when a freight train derailed in the central Repu- rather the Central Democratic Republic of Congo. The accident north of Kalanga, the capital of Central Kasai Province. Officials say the death toll may rise. Royal accident, ra- rather railway accidents in the DRC are frequent and often deadly. Dilapidated infrastructure is usually cited as the cause of most accidents. At least 6,700 Rohingya people were killed in Myanmar in the Rakhine State between the the 25th of September and, and August and September. More than 700 of them were children below the ages of five years. These are the findings of surveys conducted by the Global Medical Aid Agency, Doctors Without Borders. The findings show that the Rohingya were targeted and is the clearest indication yet of the deadly widespread violence during the clearance operations. MSF's uh, Bori Lagrange. 
And finally, Russia and China have both condemned President Donald Trump's new national security strategy unveiled yesterday, which portrays them as rivals. To the United States, the Kremlin spokesperson said at first glance the strategy was imperialist. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Right, thanks, Jolane, for that news update. Your time is 17.05 Central African time. Right here on Africa Digest and Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. In South Africa, reaction to the election of Cyril Ramaphosa as the ANC president has been steadily flowing in. Many groups are calling on him and the party's top six to move swiftly to deal with state capture and corruption. Ramaphosa emerged victorious in a close race with Ngosazana Dlamini Zuma at the party's national elective conference in Nesrek, south of Johannesburg. Session Naidu has more. Comrades, in the next position, Secretary General. And the votes are as follows. Comrade Ace Mahashule at 2360 votes. Comrade Senzo Mkunu, 2336 votes. That was the reaction at Nazrek in Johannesburg after Ace Mahashule beat his rival Senzo Mkunu, former KZN Premier, to the position of the ANC Secretary General. Elias Sokhobela Mahashule was born in 1959 at Tumahole Township in Paris in the Free State. Mahashule, fondly known as Ace in the political cycles, still lives with his family in Paris. He entered the politics in 1976 at a tender age of 17 and since then he never looked back. He played an active role in the now famous Val Triangle riot. At the time, he was a school teacher at Motkaka High School and he was forced to go into exile following his arrest in 1985. Mahashule then went to live in Zimbabwe, Zambia and Tanzania until his return after the unbanning of the ANC in 1990. Mahashule has been overlooked for the premiership position three times, but that did not give the people in the province any doubt about his leadership qualities. The people always rewarded him by electing him chairman each time a conference was held. Between 1997 and 2004, the ANC deployed him to parliament following a bitter power struggle between him and then-premier Musua Teralokota. Mahashule was also the people's choice in 1994 for premiership but the provincial leadership decided he was still too young to lead, opening the way for Lekota. Mahashule was overlooked for a premiership by President Tabombeki in 1999 when Winky Direko took over the premiership. Instead, Mbeki opted for a lightweight Beatrice Mashoff, much to the disdain of the rank and file in the province. When Mashoff took over, she appointed Mahashule, MEC for Agriculture, but he was fired in April 2005. Mahashule used his exit from Mashoff executive as an opportunity to reconnect with the masses. He intensified his battle project, raising funds for students who could not afford to pay their fees, delivering blankets and getting donations for the elderly and orphans in the province. This is how some people reacted to his appointment as Secretary General of the ANC. To be honest, I really don't know what's going to happen, but I hope that there's going to be change, it's going to bring change. Yeah. 
that's what I think. We are not happy. People are not happy because now Zuma and Mahashule is like they are one thing. No, I'm not really happy as such because him and Zuma, they are one thing. So it's more or less the same thing. Yeah. Mahashule will now have to relinquish his position of the provincial chairman and that of the premier of the Free State. I'm Ishmael Mudiba in Bloemfontein. South Africa's ruling ANC chairperson in the Free State uh, and uh, Premier Ace Mahashule has been elected as the new party secretary general. He's taking over from Gwede Mandashi who occupied the position for two terms. Mahashule has been the longest serving ANC chairperson in the country having served as the ANC Free State chairperson for more than 20 years. Mahashule now has to leave his position of the Premier of the Free State. He was recently elected as the chairman of the ANC in the controversial elective provincial conference a week ago in Bares, but the High Court in Bloemfontein had to step in four days later and declare the outcome of the provincial elective conference null and void. Ishmael Mudiba reports. Comrades, in the next position, Secretary General, and the votes are as follows. Comrade Ace Mahashule at 2360 votes. Comrade Senzo Mkunu, two, three, three, six, four. That was the reaction at Nazrek in Johannesburg after Ace Mahashule beat his rival Senzom Kunu, former KZN Premier, to the position of the ANC Secretary General. Elias Sokhobela Mahashule was born in 1959 at Tumahole Township in Paris in the Free State. Mahashule, fondly known as Ace in the political cycles, still lives with his family in Paris. He entered the politics in 1976 at a tender age of 17 and since then he never looked back. He played an active role in the now famous Val Triangle riot. At the time, he was a school teacher at Motkaka High School and he was forced to go into exile following his arrest in 1985. Mahashule then went to live in Zimbabwe, Zambia and Tanzania until his return after the unbanning of the ANC in 1990. Mahashule has been overlooked for the premiership position three times, but that did not give the people in the province any doubt about his leadership qualities. The people always rewarded him by electing him chairman each time a conference was held. Between 1997 and 2004, the ANC deployed him to parliament following a bitter power struggle between him and then Premier Musua Teralokota. Mahashule was also the people's choice in 1994 for premiership. But the provincial leadership decided he was still too young to lead, opening the way for Lekota. Mahashule was overlooked for a premiership by President Tabombeki in 1999 when Winky Direko took over the premiership. Instead, Mbeki opted for a lightweight Beatrice Mashoff, much to the disdain of the rank and file in the province. When Mashoff took over, she appointed Mahashule, MEC for Agriculture, but he was fired in April 2005. Mahashule used his exit from Mashoff's executive as an opportunity to reconnect with the masses. He intensified his battle project, raising funds for students who could not afford to pay their fees, delivering blankets and getting donations for the elderly and orphans in the province. This is how some people reacted to his appointment as Secretary General of the ANC. To be honest, I really don't know what's going to happen, but I hope that there's going to be change, it's going to bring change. Yeah, that's what I think. We are not happy. People are not happy because now Zuma and Mahashule is like they are one thing. No, I'm not really happy as such 
because him and Zuma they are one thing so it's more or less the same thing yeah. Mahashule will now have to relinquish his position of the provincial chairman and that of the premier of the free state. I'm Ishmael Mudiba in Bloemfontein. A military court in Lesotho has found 22 members of the Lesotho Defence Force not guilty of mutiny. Charges brought against them between May and June 2015. The soldiers were arrested for their perceived support for slain Commander Lieutenant General Ma Barangwe Mahao, who was killed by members of the LDF on 25 June 2015. Amnesty International says the fact that the soldiers have been cleared of the spurious charges brought against them is a victory for justice. More from Shirin Mukadam, Amnesty International's researcher for Lesotho. Amnesty International believes that the fact that these soldiers have been cleared of the spurious charges brought against them, um, that this is actually a victory for justice. Um, And Amnesty International believes that for the past two years, the 23 soldiers have been persecuted for their perceived loyalty to certain military commanders. Some of them were um, were held in in inhumane conditions, and some have raised allegations of torture, and um, others were denied adequate medical treatment whenever they were ill. So Amnesty International really believes that this is a victory for justice in Lesotho, um, and we have been calling for, consistently calling for the soldiers' release since their arrest between May to June 2015. And Amnesty International is calling for um, Lesotho authorities to ensure the right to effective remedy for the soldiers who have now been cleared of all charges for reparations for both the soldiers and their families, as well as the guarantee of non-repetition that this will never happen again in Lesotho. The military court yesterday found that um, there was no evidence um, for the mutiny charges and all other charges against the soldiers, and the soldiers were clear, uh, cleared of all charges um, based on the fact that there was no evidence. You mentioned that some of these soldiers were ill-treated and tortured. Can you just tell us more about that? Um, Amnesty International has received allegations that some of the soldiers endured um, torture um, during their detention and were held in inhumane conditions. Some of them were also denied adequate medical treatment. We have raised these concerns in previous um, reports that we have released, as well as um, press releases. But we we really believe that we we welcome the step that was taken yesterday um, of the military court to clear the soldiers of the spurious charges against them. And we really believe that this development is a victory for justice in Lesotho. And we hope that um, authorities will ensure that this doesn't happen again. That is Sharon Mugadam, Amnesty International's researcher for Lesotho, speaking to Ntlantla Mahlangu. Attention to our listeners. From the 30th of October 2017, the first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hour show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hour Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. It is 17.15 Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. 
Talks aimed at reviving South Sudan peace agreement, which collapsed in 2015, enter the second day today in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. Representing rebel leader Riyad Mashar are three top officials. The European Union is also represented at the talks organized by the Intergovernmental Authority on Development, IGAD, a regional trade bloc in East Africa. To tell us more is East Africa correspondent James Shumanyula. Ethiopia's Prime Minister Hele Mariam Dusalen has asked the Yuba government and representatives of rebel leader Riek Machar to ensure that the ongoing talks organized by Intergovernmental Authority on Development IGAD end amicably with the express purpose of reviving the peace agreement signed by South Sudan President Salva Kiir and rebel chief Riek Machar. The peace agreement signed in 2015 collapsed shortly after it was signed paving the way for the extensive fighting that the Juba authorities have failed to stop. Rebel leader Riek Machar is represented at the Addis Ababa talks by three of his top officials, Angelina Teng, Henry Odwar, and Elias Nyamel Wakason. So far, they have not addressed a press conference promising to do so before the talks end later this week. Speaking on the sidelines of the Addis Ababa talks, the European Union Special Representative for the Horn of Africa, Alexander Randos, said time has come for South Sudan to stop what he described as senseless fighting. The facts have to be put on the table if people are going to have a a proper discussion. Let's not hide behind things. And I think what's needed now is a candid discussion about how we can bring the fighting to an absolute standstill. That's the first clear step. And the right people are gathered to discuss and at least settle something. Alluding to the ongoing fighting between government troops and fighters loyal to rebel leader Riek Machar, European Union representative Alexander Randos brought to light the following factor. The fighting has got everyone sitting outside, everyone's fled. So we've got to move fast to stop the fighting and create the conditions so that South Sudanese can begin to return. Then we begin to look at what may be the way forward. Representing the Yuba administration in Addis Ababa are South Sudan Foreign Affairs Minister Deng Alor and Cabinet Affairs Minister Elias Lamoro. Lamoro emphasizes the importance of the talks which he refers to as the forum. The forum is to energize, reactivate and revitalize rather than negotiate the agreement on the resolution of the conflict in the Republic of South Sudan. The forum should review the agreement implementation status to provide the basis for the conduct of the high-level revitalization forum. I therefore call upon you, my brothers and sisters, to reciprocate the approach and attitude towards the high-level revitalization forum in order for us to return peace to our country and end the sufferings of our people. On his part, South Sudan Foreign Affairs Minister Deng Alor is optimistic that the talks will produce tangible results pertaining to the revival of the collapsed agreement. We hope we will be able to arrive this time at uh, an agreement that we must implement because our problem has always been in the implementation of uh, agreements. That was South Sudan Foreign Affairs Minister Deng Alor speaking at the IGAD-sponsored peace talks aimed at reviving the peace agreement that collapsed in South Sudan shortly after it was signed in 2015. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula.
Malawian President Peter Motariga has declared 20 districts that were affected by crop-munching armyworms as disaster areas. The declaration is in line with the powers vested upon him of the Disaster Preparedness and Relief Act. The armyworms are attacking millet, sorghum and maize, which is the staple food crop for Malawi. George Mohango reports from Blanta. For armyworm, a new pest that attacked maize fields in some districts in Malawi, definitely continues to cause havoc. Malawi's maize crop, the staple grain for the impoverished nation, has been devastated by the pest, which has infested 35,870 hectares, or 50.3%. But one of the Blanta city residents had this observation as to how government should contain this issue of pests. Okay, I, th- I think government has to, first of all, find out from other other countries how they they, they, they have been handling uh, the issue of four MOMs because um, on our own I, 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 I doubt if we can um, manage to deal with the problem alone um, so I think the first step would be to find out uh, the strategies that our friends in other countries uh, use or used yeah, when uh, they faced this this space challenge. According to Press Secretary and Presidential Spokesperson Mgeme Kalilani, Mutarik has assured Malawians that government will do all it can to contain the situation. Mutarik is appealing for more support from the international donor community and the relevant United Nations agencies to deal with the situation. The AMOMs are caterpillars that march across the landscape in large groups, feasting on young maize plants, wiping out the entire fields. George Mohango, Blantyre. Parkinson's disease can leave people struggling to walk, speak and sleep. There is no cure and no definitive diagnostic test. But now prompted by a woman in Scotland who can smell the condition. Scientists are working on discovering the molecules responsible for the odor. And as the BBC's Elizabeth quickly reports, that could lead to a simple test and earlier diagnosis. Joy Milne from Perth has a quite incredible sense of smell. She knew her husband Les had Parkinson's before he was diagnosed because his smell changed. It was a new smell. I didn't know what it was. I had not met it anywhere else. Um, so it wasn't in my memory. And I kept on thinking, goodness, this, this smell. And I kept on saying to him, but, you know, you're not, you're not showering. What, what's wrong? What are you doing? And he became quite upset about it. He really did. So I just had to be quiet. But she only linked this to Parkinson's after they joined a support group and she could smell it everywhere. We sat down, we were having a cup of tea, and I said to him, those people smell the same as you. And he said, what? What are you talking about? I said, the people with Parkinson's in that room smelt the same as you. Les died two years ago at the age of 65. But before then, Joy spoke to Dr Tilo Kunath, He's a Parkinson's UK fellow at Edinburgh University's School of Biological Sciences. He decided to test her and she was very, very accurate, even spotting it before people had been diagnosed. She was telling us that this, this, this individual had Parkinson's before he knew, before anybody knew. So then I really started to believe her that she could really detect Parkinson's. And that opens up the possibility of a new test. 
You can imagine a small collection of fairly inexpensive tests, and a skin swab for uh, an odor would be very inexpensive. And that's where Professor Perdita Barnan comes in. She works at the School of Chemistry at Manchester University. So the purpose of this experiment is to see whether Joy can distinguish the Parkinson's smells from the samples that we've taken from patients. She's looking for the molecules that are unique to Parkinson's, and she thinks she's found them. I went to see her the day she told Joy. Here we have 10 features, 10 molecules, that are distinctive to that population. And so we think that those, those molecules may well be what Joy is smelling, because this type of analysis was most similar to, to Joy's smell. And in the future, this could lead to a simple diagnostic test and could make a real difference to people living with Parkinson's. We were together 35 years of Parkinson's. We were married for 42 years when he died. So I don't want other families to have the same experience. I want relief for them. I want to see a better understanding within medicine, a better uh, education for the general public and the hope that with early diagnosis there is going to be treatment. The report is by the BBC's Elizabeth Quickly. Channel Africa has good news for you. We have extended our reach. If you have an iPad or iPhone, download the Channel Africa iOS app at itunes.apple.com. If you have a cell phone, then get our Android app at Google Store. Get the latest news from Africa. Get the Channel Africa app. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Seventeen twenty-six Central African Time, InfoChinaAfrica.co.za. South Africa's Minister of Small Business Development, Lindy Wezulu, says her department has witnessed enormous progress for small businesses over the last three years. Although there are challenges, the minister was speaking at the Progressive Business Forum at the ANC's 54th elective conference in Johannesburg. He has urged government departments and big businesses to support SMMEs and has pleaded with South Africans to buy locally made products to boost the sector, Amina Akram reports. The Small Business Development Minister says the revitalization of townships is important for the development of small businesses. Despite progress made in her department, the minister says small businesses still face a number of challenges. Many of your small and medium enterprises as well as cooperatives, they're having to compete with big companies who've got deeper pockets, who've been operating for a very long time, and they are supposed to be competing. Yes, there is a political will to make sure that we support your SMMEs, but a political will on its own, not being supported by real activities, by real financial and non-financial support, it would almost be meaningless. Zulu says the ANC will be finalizing policies that they undertook at the ANC policy conference in June and will endorse some proposals for the sector. She says the party is aware that serious intervention is needed in the wake of poor economic climate. 
Her department has also pushed for government departments to procure more from small businesses. The ANC identified the areas which we need to deal with in supporting SMMEs. For instance, in 2012, the 2012 Manga Wung resolution encouraged the creation of new businesses, cooperatives, and expansion of small businesses by reducing costs of compliance, ensuring, ensuring payment of government um, invoices for the adoption of the 30% procurement, and that is now in place. The minister says the ANC has also supported SMMEs in the ICT value chain. I was very excited uh, by the Department of Post and Telecommunications because when we engaged with them about the ICT sector and the opportunities that exist there for small and medium enterprises, they then decided that they were going to go and develop a strategy which is focused on supporting SMMEs. And this strategy was adopted by Cabinet. The minister is calling for speedy land reform to transform the agricultural sector. She says this will help greatly to expand entrepreneurship in the country. South Africans and black South Africans in particular need uh, the land. Number two, they need to be assisted with skills in order for them to be able to utilize that land adequately. And therefore, when we talk about the farmers who are still owning tracks and tracks of this land and there's very little transformation there. We're calling on the farmers to say, this is your country, this is our country, but if you don't walk with us in this, tomorrow we might have a bigger problem which we might not be able uh, to deal with. Government says it will look at removing red tape and streamlining businesses to help expand the sector. The minister says her department cannot work alone and has encouraged other sectors in the society to assist. Amina Akram, SABC News, Johannesburg. It is now 17.30 Central African time. Here's Trola Natula with your news headlines. Thank you, Spuelele. Making headlines starting in South Africa, the matter of the 68 alleged votes related to the election of the ruling party's ANC's Secretary-General is now expected to go to plenary. This follows a meeting of the ANC steering committee to resolve the issue. Four people have been killed and five injured late on Monday when a freight train derailed in the central of the Democratic Republic of Congo. And finally, at least 6,700 Rohingya people were killed in Myanmar in the Rakhine state between the 25th of August and and September. For Channel Africa, I'm Jolani Tulo. Seventeen thirty-one Central African time. Now, the Centre for Agriculture and Biosciences International have raised concerns that the attack on the world's banana production is worse than first feared. With a perfect storm of three pests having the potential to decimate around thirty-five billion dollars worth of crops, Dr. Rob Reader, senior diagnostician for the Centre for Agriculture and Biosciences International, says it's vital that scientists, industry, government, and international organisations come together and agree on a unified prevention, detection and management framework which will able to respond to any invasive species and not just specific ones. 
Well, this isn't necessarily a news story, but the major concern is that bananas are under threat from a variety of pests and diseases. The major reason for this is bananas are cultivated vegetatively, so there's very little genetic diversity within the banana populations. And in particular, we rely on one particular variety of banana called Cavendish, and virtually all of the bananas that are used for export, about 99% of them, in fact, are all of this Cavendish clone which is identical. So any pest or disease which is able to overcome the resistance in this banana variety, therefore, can virtually wipe it out. And we've seen this before in the past. So does it mean that we don't have natural bananas that we are consuming? We do. There's quite a bit of diversity in, in the banana population around the world, but the bananas which are principally used for export tend to be this one variety, which is called Cavendish. And that is the one that is particularly under threat, although all bananas, to some degree, are under threat from these pests and diseases because some of them have very broad host ranges. Now, talking about this fungus known as the banana disease, tropical race 4, what could be said about it with regards to the threat to some of the banana species? Well, tropical race 4, Panama disease. Now, Panama disease is a disease which is present through most of the banana growing areas of the world. But there's various different races of it. So the first two races, race one and race two, do attack banana cultivars, but not the Cavendish variety. Previously, the Cavendish variety was resistant to this, and so was used to manage the disease. Now, the new race that has occurred, tropical race four, has overcome the resistance in Cavendish, also some other varieties as well, the ones which were previously resistant to to race one and two as well, and is now posing a much bigger threat to bananas around the world. Looking at the plant itself of a banana, does it have its uh, natural mechanisms to defend itself from some of these funguses that are attacking the plant? It does. Some of the other varieties of bananas that are around, some of the plantain varieties, some of the East African highland varieties, seem to have some resistance to tropical race 4. But most of the other varieties seem to be susceptible. In fact, estimates of about 80% of the world's banana cultivars are probably susceptible to tropical race 4. Why is that, Doctor? Why is that? Well, it's evolved to overcome the resistance of the banana, and this particular race now is on the move. So it started off in Indonesia, and it's now starting to spread across the world. It's being transported in planting materials and in soil, and it's starting to move around the world. And this is what the concern is for the banana industry, that this particular race of this fungus is now moving and is a threat to the banana industry globally. So are there any mechanisms that could be used in order to be able to prevent this from happening? Well, the major thing is sanitation and also quarantine to stop the organism from uh, reaching the country in the first place. And this is one of the things that CABI is calling on is for countries and banana producers to improve their quarantine and to come together to look at ways to detect, prevent, and then try to manage the pest. Now, management is very difficult once you have the fungus in your country because once it gets into the soil, it can live in the soil for a very long time, and it's very difficult to manage. You can't manage it with uh, fungicides. Realistically, you have to move on to a different area and then quarantine that particular area. Of course, the other way to manage the disease is also through host resistance 
and finding those cultivars which are resistant to the disease and that's ultimately going to be the best way to manage the disease once it reaches a country. And uh, Doctor, what could be said about the banana skipper? The banana skipper, well again this is another threat to bananas. A banana skipper is, is host specific, it likes to feed on bananas and in this case it's a butterfly which lays its eggs on the banana leaves and when the eggs hatch the caterpillars start to roll up the leaves and then they feed inside this protective roll of the banana leaf and they can be very destructive. If the infestation is heavy they can completely defoliate the banana so leading to reduced yields. What is the Center for Agriculture and Biosciences International doing in order to prepare to counter this invasive fungus? So CABI is launching a new invasive response program which aims to generate partnerships and policy awareness to support rural households which are for these pests and diseases which are threatening. We want to build capacity in the areas of particularly of prevention, detection and management, working in collaboration with the country to do this. And this is what we believe is the best way that we can start to tackle and manage these banana threats. How is the global network of plant clinics established by CABI doing with regards to some of the projects that have been undertaken to deal with some of these issues like the funguses that are taking these banana plants? Well, the plant clinic network is an excellent way of helping to detect and monitor the spreads of these pests and diseases. Now, it's very important for the detection in the first place because farmers are bringing in samples, are bringing in their disease plants to the plant doctors for diagnosis. And in the process of doing that, we are picking up on some of these new pests and diseases which are threatening African countries. And so when they arrive at the plant clinic, the plant doctor will give a diagnosis, but also these records are then available to the countries in order for them to track and monitor the spread of these new diseases. And it's already been the case that the plant clinics in countries in Asia, for example, have picked up on new diseases long before they were being reported officially through official channels. So this is a good mechanism for identifying pest diseases very early so management uh, can be taken. As it is that an earlier strain of Panama disease completely wiped out the banana industry in Central America and the Caribbean in the mid-20th century, what made it to make a comeback? the banana industry to come back? Well, the industry was wiped out in the 1950s by Panama disease again, but this was race one of the disease. So race one came along and it could attack the variety that was grown most commonly then, which was called Gros Michel. And so race one of Panama disease attacked Gros Michel. And once the fungus got into the soil, farmers discovered that they couldn't plant their bananas anymore because they'd simply die. So the way that they combated this back in the 1950s was to look for a variety which had resistance. And in this case, it happened to be the Cavendish clone. And they chose the Cavendish clone because it was resistant to disease and also because it had features about it which made it uh, very suitable for use. So it had good shelf life and the bananas themselves were quite sweet and were acceptable to the public. So this cloning... How far does it go in as far as uh, creating GMO bananas is concerned? Uh, well, this, again, is one way that the disease could be managed. So we need to find resistant cultivars in order to manage the disease. And there's several different ways we can do that. We can look 
to uh, traditional sources of banana for resistance and we can either try and breed resistance and introduce new banana cultivars other than Cavendish or we can try and introduce genes from those resistant varieties into bananas such as Cavendish to try and make them resistant. So those are the two routes that we can go down. That is Dr. Rob Reeder, Senior Diagnostician for the Centre for Agriculture and Biosciences International, on the line from Wellington, Oxfordshire in England, talking to Wandi Lekalipa. The Philippine Red Cross has launched a digital information platform for migrants which targets overseas workers and their families. The virtualvolunteer.org has already been rolled out in Greece, Italy and Sweden with over 34,000 people using it. The app provides information on, among others, explanation of their rights when abroad and practical advice on how to avoid falling prey to traffickers. Philippine Red Cross Secretary General Ati Balabiaib explains. Anyone who signs into the web page can access this application. And it provides useful and timely information about, you know, whatever available assistance, services in specific countries, including uh, detailed procedures, rights, entitlements, whatever. These are all safety tips. A wealth of information is available on this web page to help migrant workers even before they leave uh, the shores, let's say, from the Philippines going to their uh, country of destination. Uh, that has been rolled out already in uh, Italy, in Sweden, and, and, and in Turkey, including Greece. We have rolled this out, so the Philippines is already the fourth country that will try this. Yeah. As, you, as you've just mentioned that it has already been rolled out in other countries, how has it done there and exactly yeah. how has it helped uh, those people? How, how have they received it as well? Well, we don't have a, uh, an exact feedback yet of how they did it in Greece or how they did in Sweden, but the fact that they have rolled it out there, now they have chosen to, because we have tried to develop this with IFRC, uh, has shown its uh, effectivity. In other words, uh, many people have uh, sought the assistance of this webpage to help them. I think there have been uh, 30,000 people who, who have tried this webpage already, learning from the experience of at least Greece. It is uh, timely that we do that in the, in the Philippines because we are a labor exporting country. We have more than 12 million people working abroad. So this should be a big help to them. You mentioned that uh, there's an estimated 12 million Filipino workers uh, overseas. Are there any specific yeah. countries that they are perhaps concentrated at or it's just an overall spread around the world? Mostly these are... Uh, the people whom we sent in the Middle East, because that's the concentration of our uh, Filipino migrants. But that does not mean that uh, the information is limited there. But the bulk of our uh, overseas workers are uh, are there, scattered in the Middle East. And uh, a lot of problems have been encountered before. So we try to mitigate this by providing them this, this uh, helpline. Practically free. It's free. You can just open the website and... Uh, and get the information you need at the moment. So even before they are deployed, they are already given some tips, especially on documentation, so they are not, uh, they will not become prey to people who will take advantage of them. Uh, Secretary General, talk us through some of the work that you do uh, as the Red Cross in, in Philippines there and just give us a sense of how the country is uh, in terms of issues around migration. We have been doing some work for uh, migrants in the field of... Uh, restoring family links. In other words, we have had any, uh, many experiences in the past where uh, people get incarcerated or they get into trouble 
or even die, there is a necessity of establishing communication with the next of kin, especially families. Or if there are families in the Philippines who might want to seek our assistance in looking for the relatives abroad, that's the kind of service that we do. We link the, the worker with his family. And so even without this uh, web-based application, on a limited basis, we have been doing that for uh, Filipino migrants who are uh, distressed abroad, those who are, find themselves in trouble. We provide this kind of humanitarian assistance. That's Philippine Red Cross Secretary General Ati Balabiab talking to Komoto Mopulane. It is now time for your economics. Yes, with Sani Matabula. Good evening. Thanks, as Pumelele investors are meeting in London to decide uh, the fate of household goods giant Steinhoff. The company owns more than 6,000 retail outlets in 30 countries. Following revelations of accounting irregularities, Steinhoff shares have collapsed. The shareholders must decide whether to keep the company afloat or sell off assets to recover some money. The BBC's Lirato Mbele reports. The largest shareholder in Steinhoff is South Africa's richest man, Crystal Visa. Second largest shareholder is the Public Investment Corporation, which is the largest pension fund on the African continent. And now that stock has been decimated by more than 80%. Crystal Visa's net worth has declined by $2 billion. And ordinary men and women who would have been retiring in the next year are not sure whether or not they've actually saved enough because of what Steinhoff has become. And Ethiopia's growing flower industry is setting its sights on the U.S. in a bid to break the dominance of Latin American producers in supplying roses and other blooms to the world's largest economy. State-owned Ethiopian Airlines Enterprise is evaluating freighter flights through Miami, Los Angeles or New York. The company currently transports uh, stamps there only in the bellies of passenger jets. Ethiopia has become a major force in global floriculture in the past two decades. NetBank Group uh, Chief Executive Officer Mike Brown has backed the new leader of South Africa's ruling party using an open letter to urge the African National Congress, Cyril Ramaphosa, to tackle the country's economic malaise. Brown, who heads up uh, the nation's fourth biggest lender and is also part of the so-called CEO initiative, which was set up last year to help government tackle job creation, boost small business funding and avert debt downgrades. Zuma's firing of former finance minister Pravin Goran in March put paid to some of the plans and South Africa's ratings were slashed to junk in April. NASPAS Group shares have lost uh, up to 8.5% over the past few days, their worst weekly performance of 2017. On Monday, the internet holding company's stock has shed a further 2.1%. NASPAS is one of South Africa's leading multinationals and a star performer on the JSE. On a roadshow in New York, the company is trading at a discount to net asset value. Market watchers say this is due to a large capital outflows from South Africa and the difficulty of raising funds locally for the diversified media company. 
London Stock Exchange Chairperson Donald Bryden warned shareholder backing to keep his job after an activist investor demanded his removal following the contested departure of CEO Xavier Roller. Shareholders of the London Stock Exchange Group voted 79% in favour of Bryden staying on. The vote came after the Children's Investment Master Fund, TCI, demanded that uh, Bryden's immediate departure accusing the chairperson of having a role in Rollet's recent departure. Rollet left his post last month, bringing forward a planned departure after blaming unwelcome publicity surrounding talk he had been forced to step down. Financial indicators now. The US dollar trading at uh, 12.9 against the South African rand. At 10 Botswana Pula, 9.88 Zambian Kwacha. Also trading at 74 pence to the British pound and 84 cents against the euro. The commodities market now, gold is at $1,260. Platinum, $903 per fine ounce. Brand crude oil is hovering at $63.37 per barrel. That's your economics news right now. Attention to our listeners. From the 30th of October 2017, the first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hour show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hour Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. It is now time for sports news. Here's Masibudi Makura. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with football news, Banyana Banyana and University of Western Cape midfielder Tembi Khatlana says she didn't expect to see her football career escalate so quickly, but is overwhelmed with her, or rather, yeah, rather is overwhelmed with her achievements so far. Now, Khatlana has been shortlisted for the CAF Women's Player of the Year Award after what has been an incredible year. Khatlana collected multiple awards, including the top goal scorer at the Kosafa tournament, as well as picking up the Kosafa Player of the tournament after Banyana. Banyana beat Zimbabwe in the final back in September. Khatlana says her hard work is paying off. It means a lot to me uh, because it shows that um, Kev is uh, recognizing women's football each and every day. Um, not a while ago, um, I didn't even think that I would even make it to Kev, but then with the performance that I displayed this year and with all the accolades that I got, uh, including um, Kosafa playing the tournament, um, 
UWC Sportswoman of the Year and Suffolk Cape Town um, Female Player of the Year. Those, I mean, are the accolades that really show me that I've worked hard in 2017 and I can continue working hard in the next coming year. The government of Kenya has given a pledge of half a million U.S. dollars to the national men's football team Harambe Stars. Players, if they qualify for the Africa Cup of Nations tournament in 2019 in Cameroon, the message was delivered to the team earlier today by the deputy head of state, William Ruto. The more difficult part is ahead of us. Yeah, The Africa Cup of Nations is a year and a bit from us. We must qualify and we must win. We must make history. And I am confident that this is the team that will make history. First things first, let me commit that if you qualify as a team, the government of Kenya will give the team 50 million shillings to share. On to local football news, as Mamlodi Sundowns prepares to host uh, Benny McCarthy's Cape Town City at Loftus Fastfall Stadium tonight, head coach Pizzo Musumane is wary of the type of attacking football City are capable of playing. Now, Sundowns are comfortably at the summit of the log with 28 points from 13 matches, six points clear of their closest rivals, Kaza Chiefs, who are on 22 points. Now, Sundowns and City, both teams, won their last matches against Bluefoot and Celtic, as well as Amazulu, respectively. When you look at Cape Town City, say they beat us twice or we never beat them, we, are, we, we will be emotional and we will personalize this. It has nothing to do with that. Yeah? Uh, there's a different rain, there's a different time. I remember Platinum Stars was beating us almost all the time. I remember Swallows was beating us all the time. Celtic was beating us all the time. You know, It's a different story now. Yeah? So you just go on with game by game and and they don't have references. I don't think there's references. You know, we are beating Chiefs all the time. They beat us now. You know, so no references. And finally, Tennis South Africa have announced that the Irene Country Club in the country's capital, Pretoria, will once again play host to a Davis Cup tie. The tie against Israel will be played over two days in a newly trialled format from the 2nd up until the 3rd of February 2018 and the first round of the Euro-Africa Zone Group 1 tie. Now, South Africa captain Marcos Ondrushka has welcomed the decision to play the tie at Irene. We're extremely excited to be playing a Davis Cup at the Irene Country Club again. It's a fantastic setting and has proven very successful for us over the last couple of years over there. And uh, this time we're playing against Israel, who is probably the most formidable team we've faced in a long time. Uh, they have Duty Sailor and uh, playing their singles, and the doubles team is going to be extremely formidable as well. So that should be some incredible tennis for our South African tennis fans in the um, sort of Gauteng area and uh, yeah we look forward to having a great tie it's going to be a huge battle um, and uh, you know we're working hard to come out on the uh, on the winning side of things again this is the second time South Africa will play Israel in Davis Cup competition. The first and only tie played between the two nations was back in 2001, where Israel narrowly beat South Africa 3-2 at home. The winner of the tie will play against group top seeds in the Czech Republic in April, with the loser going into a relegation playoff position in September 2018. The Zaya Sports News at the South Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective.
This is Africa Digest. Let us recap our top stories. A military court in Lesotho finds 22 members of the Lesotho Defence Force not guilty of mutiny. Talks aimed at reviving South Sudan peace agreement, which collapsed in 2015, enter a second day today in the Ethiopian capital, Addis Ababa. And that's all we have for you this hour. From myself, Pamela Lezondi, producer, Lebo Munamoholu, technical producer, Revelino Ibrahim, and the rest of the team. Thank you very much for listening. Info at Channel Africa, and you can also find us on Channel Africa One. We leave you the song titled Mangwan. Sandasi, 